0: Good day. Welcome back to New Books in National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased to have with us Dr. Christopher Preble. Dr. Preble is Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. He has taught at Temple University and has served in the U.S. Navy. Today we are speaking about his co-author book, with John Glasser and Trevor Troll, Fuel to the Fire, How Trump Made American Foreign Policy Even Worse, and How We Can Recover, published by the Cato Institute. Welcome, Dr. Preble.
1: Thank you, sir. It's good to be on the show.
0: Dr. Preble, what is the thesis of the book?
1: So uh, the the basic thesis is that uh, whereas uh, while uh, President Trump uh, sort of articulated um, uh, a set of critiques of U.S. foreign policy, uh, not in a particularly s- systematic or sophisticated way, but there were some you know, uh, threads that, that resonated with the American public that had to do with uh, uh, costly and unproductive wars and uh, heavy involvement around the world and things like that, uh, that clearly resonated. Uh, but we were concerned that his execution of those ideas or has, has not been very effective, has not been very thorough going. And when you actually explore what, what motivates Donald Trump, going back to his, you know, his very earliest utterances as a public figure, um, it is not the kind of foreign policy that we think actually would serve U.S. Uh, interests best, which is mostly about peaceful global engagement, not uh, the militarized fashion that we've been practicing for a good part of the last several decades.
0: What, if anything, would the recent Ukraine scandal change or modify, or for that matter, reinforce in your book?
1: I think that the there are definitely elements of the scandal that reveal sort of his... Personality traits, which we identify my, my colleague John, my co author John Glazer, sort of went into the pro, sort of unpacked the what he calls the four frames of donald trump and and and, and some of those pertain to sort of his uh, uh, personalizing the office of the presidency and sort of imagining that all of the instruments of power and governance are actually intended to be for his own personal uh, use uh, I, I think that is is comes through very clearly in the in the Ukraine scandal the the notion that he would shake down a foreign government to help in a us election and and more importantly the notion that anyone would think uh, that this is improper uh, in any way uh, you know appears to have, have struck him as just uh, un- unbelievable now of course we now know that he went to rather extraordinary lengths to hide it so that, you, that does suggest that he did know there was something wrong about it but the more important point is he really does expect that the that Executive branch and all of the various folks that that report to him are are serving him personally, not serving uh, uh, him in the office or more importantly, the interests of the United States of America.
0: You stated on page five that President Trump is quote uh, the least informed, least experienced, and least intellectually prepared U.S. president in modern memory. Unquote. Uh, how is yes. this? How is this state of affairs possible?
1: How is this possible? Yes. Uh, because we have a two-party system, and uh, it's a coin flip uh, to see who wins between those two. Once the person has secured the nomination, and thus, uh, what when uh, you know when, after he secured the nomination in the summer of 2016, he had about a one in three chance by the betting markets, and obviously we know what happened. Um, so this is possible because the 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 process whereby the two parties in, separately uh choose uh, their candidate their chosen candidate is not always uh sort of uh effective at screening out people who are actually not uh effective uh, not uh, up to the job, now we could say that they 've done a pretty good job so far uh because this is the obviously the most egregious case where a person that was just clearly not qualified managed to get elected um but I think that the that there were a number of sort of you know important idiosyncrasies or or oddities of the Republican uh, race, the the wide open nature of the Republican race in 2016 that allowed him to leverage his sort of name identification uh, into a victory. And and so, you know, that's a separate that's a separate discussion. We don't really get into that much in the book. But but I think that's that's the easiest, simplest explanation.
0: Uh, You state that President Trump is, quote, chauvinist in orientation and militarist in method, unquote. In light of the president's non-response to various Iranian pinpricks, for lack of a better expression, of or for that matter his muddled response to the recent Turkish incursion into northern Syria and his uh, non-response, to put it mildly, to the missile continued missile testing uh, by North Korea, uh, isn't your uh, characterization of him a little bit? Um,
1: misleading? So I think that we have to remember how did we get uh, in those three circumstances in the first place. So in the case of uh, the Iranian uh, responses to uh, President Trump's own maximum pressure campaign, these all ramped up after uh, President Trump withdrew the United States unilaterally from uh, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, uh, even though Iran was in compliance with the deal, even though President Trump's own national security officials affirmed that that Iran was um, in compliance with the deal. And so the, the Trump administration, President Trump himself and, and Secretary Pompeo and others, their attitude is, uh, you know, we're, we're going to continue to pressure the Iranians and they're not going to respond. And I see these as mostly responses, uh, responses to that decision, that wrongheaded decision. Um, in the case of um, uh, North Korea, I think again there was a situation where the United States was making some uh, increasingly bellicose threats to towards North Korea, and uh, they have responded. Uh, and now we see, you know, testing on both sides. Of the United States also just launched a, a new uh, tested a new missile. Uh, and in the case of the Syrian uh, uh, incursion, I, I think that was a case where the Turks had been objecting for some uh, had been objecting for some time to um the the presence of us for, of forces that were um uh the presence of forces that they characterized as as uh, as terrorists and they had been complaining about this for several years and and i think that um uh you know his his non response to that was was a uh, uh, the the turks sort of him just sort of uh, you know giving a green light to the turks to uh to cross over the border and to to take action the more complicated case which i hope we don't have to Contemplate, and it's certainly a possibility is is what happens if the Syrians cross over into the Turkish uh, into Turkish territory, because of course Turkey is a NATO ally, and therefore uh, the United States is is at least um, uh, putatively obligated to defend Turkish territory or the territory of any of the other 29 NATO members uh uh an attack like that even if and so the question is if turkey provokes such an attack uh does that obviate our obligation to come to their defense again i hope we don't test that theory because i think there would certainly be multiple opportunities uh for that to occur um so i, I think each case needs to be you know sort of explored uh, individually um and, and meanwhile, the president, of course, has significantly increased. Uh, president Trump has significantly increased U.S. military operations in the Middle East, in Afghanistan, in terms of, in terms of uh, increasing the number of troops there. He's added troops in Eastern Europe. He's um, armed the, the Ukrainian uh, government. Um, uh, you know, And so I, I don't see a pattern of uh, an unwillingness or disinterest in using um, uh military force. Uh, I just think it's he likes to he wants to use it in in the way that he thinks serves uh, his personal interests.
0: Uh can you explicate what you mean in the book by quote, primacy unquote? and uh, particularly as it relates to u s. foreign policy?
1: Sure. So primacy is the term that that we use. Uh, It comes from uh, sort of uh, back at the beginning of the post-Cold War era, so the early 1990s sort of framing up what, how the United States would approach the world now that the Soviet Union had collapsed, the Cold War was over, how would the United States uh, engage with the rest of the world. And the decision was made by uh, the George H.W. Bush administration and then essentially affirmed by uh, all subsequent administrations that the United States would use its military power uh, in a forward-deployed, active way, to not merely discourage uh, adversaries, but also to discourage allies and partners from wanting uh, to have uh, greater military capabilities of their own, because uh, if they were not tempted to go down that road, uh, the United States could continue to maintain uh, the kind of control that we uh, aspired to during the Cold War. Uh, it worked for a while. I think it's fair to say that there were there were certainly moments when U.S. Uh, allies who had grown dependent upon American protection uh, were more, uh, uh, shall we say, pliant or more more receptive to U.S. Uh, pressure, precisely because they were sheltered under this sort of security umbrella. Uh, but I think under President Trump in particular, we see a number of even long-time reliable allies really questioning whether or not the alliance with the United States continues to serve their uh, medium to long-term security interests.
0: How, if anything, has American foreign policy changed since the end of the Cold War, in your opinion?
1: I think that it's changed in the sense in the, in the early days, it changed pr- rather dramatically in the sense that uh, the United States was, was somewhat reluctant to use military force, especially in an overt way, uh, and if there was a concern that those forces might come into contact with uh, the Soviet Union or or other m- major states, mostly the Soviet Union, again, the, the danger that a small war spiral into World War III. And so I do think there were... What the you know what the political scientists would call sort of structural constraints in the international system in a bipolar system uh, that you're less uh, uh, likely to engage in military operations that might. Um, uh, that might lead to, to escalation. Uh, after the end of the Cold War, Less uh, the, the US, uh, U.S. officials were less concerned about that. And uh, I think you see a substantial increase in the number of times where the United States deployed forces and uh, engaged in hostilities uh, after the end of the Cold War. Than than during it. In fact, it's rather it's rather remarkable. There there were more were more instances of the use of force up to and including the use of force against Iraq in 2003. uh, More in the 15 years after the end of the Cold War than in the 45 years of the Cold War. So this this is a, a pretty dramatic example, a sort of demonstration. Uh, That structure, the structure of the international system matters and under unipolarity or primacy, uh, the the dominant power is not constrained, is it feels um, empowered to uh, to act and is and is less concerned about uh, about anyone pushing back on it. Of course, again, I think we've transitioned out of uh, unchallenged primacy. I don't don't know exactly where we would fix the date, uh, but we are now seeing more resistance. Um, from from all quarters, not just other nation states, of course, but we're seeing considerable resistance uh, even from non-state actors and relatively minor powers uh, because they, they question the United States' uh, uh, intentions in some cases, in other cases they question the, the United States' uh, capacity for uh, advancing their own security.
0: Can you explicate a little bit as to why, in you, your opinion your, and the opinion of your co-authors, American primacy or, if you like, hegemony in the international system is a wrong policy for the United States to follow?
1: Sure. I think it it ultimately does not serve... U.S. interests to have uh, one country, us, the responsible effectively for the security of the rest of the planet. Um, for one thing, I don't think that we're uh, that we can expect that the United States will guess correctly on behalf of everyone else what is actually in their security interest. Frankly, I think we struggle a little bit even to define what's in our security interest. Uh, and so, I envision my colleagues and I envision uh, a world order where there are a number of capable and empowered actors. Not just one, uh, and you know the alternative is the United States continuing to be the sole dominant superpower, expecting our friends and partners to defer to us and follow our leadership. Uh, meanwhile, there are a few determined challengers, China being the most important, who are not likely to do that. Who are not likely to simply defer to U.S. Uh, leadership and uh, and sort of turn uh, turn away when the United States pressures them. In fact, we see China resisting. Uh, more and more urgently. Uh, and so that's, that's the vision that we have in our, our approach is that, is that the United States is is clearly a very important po- uh, country in the world. It is, it is a dominant economic power still, uh, and yes, still the dominant military, uh, but it really does serve our interests and serves the interests of a broader global community uh, for more uh, countries to play a more uh, concerted role in advancing uh, peace and security.
0: Given uh, People's Republic of China and Russian revisionism and aggressive behavior of the past 10 to 12 years, why, as you put it, uh, the liberal international order could possibly survive, as you seem to believe, without an American uh, hegemon or primary actor?
1: Um, it's a great question. I think the reason is because uh, twofold. The first is there are many other uh, liberal uh, countries. We mean this in the sm- in the small L classical liberal sense, countries that are committed to principles of uh, peaceful exchange and non-interference and sovereign equality and things like that. Uh, far more than than just the United States there and therefore they have a vested interest in seeing that system continue uh, the the few disruptors even China itself has benefited handsomely from this liberal system they would like to shape it to their preferences but it is no there's no evidence that the Chinese are actually trying to create uh, or, or turn back the clock on uh, global trade for example they would like to be able to participate in it and continue to do so it's actually it's made them. It's turned them from a desperately poor country into a middle income country and eventually perhaps uh, something more than that. Uh, But more importantly, in the recent years, and especially under President Trump, um, it's hard to make the case that the liberal international order um, can be sustained by a president by the leader of that country on which the entire system depends who's not committed to liberal principles as we've talked about president trump is not committed to principles of free trade he believes trade is a zero-sum game and therefore that a victory for one side is necessarily a loss for the other he does not see trade as a as mutually beneficial uh, he is skeptical of principles of um uh, human rights and uh, democracy and uh and things like that he's, he's been sort of openly skeptical of that and of of course, he's t- from time to time shown great um, uh, enthusiasm even an interest in in uh, dictators, everyone from, from Kim Jong-un to Tayyip to, uh, to Erdogan and Turkey. Uh, and so I think it's harder to make the argument that the liberal international order, such as it is, um, uh, can only survive with the United States uh, directing every other country in the world to follow those precepts especially when that country, the United States of America, isn't following those precepts, and frankly hasn't been for some time.
0: Uh, Are not aspects of the Trump foreign policy part and parcel of the pre-FDR, pre-1939 American foreign policy that used to be called isolationist, specifically tight curbs on immigration, protective tariffs, and unilateralism in foreign policy?
1: I do think there are some disturbing parallels between President Trump's approach uh, and those that you've just described from the 1930s. Um, uh, We should also mention sort of uh, encouraging and and, uh, uh, rising nationalism, not just in the United States, but globally. Um, But it's absolutely true that in the United States in the 1930s, the United States turned dramatically away from global trade to uh, to our own economic ruin but ultimately I think it did contribute to uh, a decline in uh, trade which ultimately contributed to rising tensions and even war uh, I believe that the highly restrictionist immigration policies that were practiced in the 20s and 30s uh, were not only not in in uh, sort of consistent with Americans uh, America's guiding principles but ultimately uh, were detrimental to us as a society I think the United States has grown uh, powerful precisely because we are welcoming uh, to others who wish to come here and and work and 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 uh, raise families, and that's that's you know that's the kind of vision that I have, and that's clearly not President Trump's vision. Uh, so I do think there are some disturbing parallels. And of course, when the very first uh, na- uh, foreign policy speech that President Trump gave. Um, you know, he called it an American for America first strategy, which was, of course, the the, the name chosen by the leading uh, isolationist uh, faction in the United States in the 1930s. Uh, and so, I think whether he intended to do that or not, I, I think uh, the parallels are, are pretty are pretty obvious.
0: Why is President Trump not, in your opinion, a realist as that term is used international relations theory?
1: I think the main reason is because while he occasionally espouses instincts that are uh, consistent with realist, realism is, uh, in the international relations uh, canon, so things which pertains to things like uh, a jockeying for power, a skepticism of the notion of international norms, of international institutions. Uh, those are there are some elements of realism in that. But I think in terms of his actual conduct of policy, it's been quite contrary to what the leading realist thinkers here in the United States, especially, have argued for. And I go I go back to the the Iran nuclear deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. Uh, that deal was uh, broadly supported by all of the leading re- realist uh, thinkers that I know, uh, the same ones, in fact, who had also uh, taken a strong stand against the Iraq War in 2002. Uh, and not a single one of those people have ever been consulted, by to my knowledge. And I know many of them. Uh, um, I was not a signatory, but I know many of them. And none of them have been consulted. There's no evidence that President Trump has taken seriously Uh, the the leading arguments of the leading realists of the day Uh, instead his foreign policy is driven more by impulses and instincts uh, that again occasionally might uh, sort of betray some realist uh, uh, sensibilities but are not it's not evidence of a thoroughgoing commitment to realist principles
0: in the book you identify four aspects of the Trumpian foreign policy doctrine what are they?
1: So you mean the four frames? Is that right? The four yes, frames. That's uh, correct. So, uh, so the the first frame is a sort of, or and I may get them out of order, but that's uh, it, it's not that. Important. So so uh, President Trump clearly sees the world uh, in, in a zero-sum transactional sort of way. So, so as I alluded to before, uh, and it's not just in trade, but whenever the United States uh, tries to secure some sort of diplomatic agreement or, or some trade agreement or something like this, it's extremely important to President Trump that the United States be seen as winning that uh, contest and, and necessarily, too, that the other negotiator uh, has lost something. This is a zero-sum game. You, you keep score by whether or not you're you you know you're rising and the other guy is falling. And by that standard, by the zero-sum transactionalism, um, not surprisingly, there are a lot of other countries that are skeptical of this because they see themselves as in danger of being on the losing end of all these uh, deals that President Trump is trying to cut, which is, I think, partly why he's had such a dreadful track record in terms of actually securing new agreements. Uh, the second frame is a sort of authoritarian mindset, which I've also alluded to, this is the notion that uh, the government itself uh, it, it exists to serve the interests. Uh, of of the leader and we see um, that model uh, you know in various uh, military dictatorships or authoritarian governments around the world where it's sort of a privileging loyalty to the the leader personal loyalty to the leader a commitment to uh, to follow his instructions even if those instructions defy the law uh, or uh, you know things like that so the president's obviously been pretty consistently skeptical of of that, that that there is anything like a national interest that is independent of what serves his own interests. Um, He also uh, is is, uh, fairly obsessed uh, with the notion of uh, prestige and respect. And this is a notion, uh, it goes back uh, really from the very beginning again of his public life, that he, he talks about it constantly. He does talk about it not just in his own people sort of personally respecting him but also of um uh again sort of equating a disrespect of the united states with uh, a disrespect of him uh and uh and, and so th- those all obviously go together uh, and uh, it's a if you look at those frames individually and they sort of you know make sense, and then again, collectively they come together to to be uh, the president acting in ways that that can be that seem fairly inconsistent. But I think if you look if you look at his policies through the frames, um, uh, th- then it makes a little more sense.
0: Uh, It should be noted that President Jackson, who you associate by way of influence with President Trump, never actually went to war against any other power, unlike, say, the Hamiltonian John Adams in the undeclared war with France or the Jeffersonian Madison uh, in the the War of 1812. Given this fact, how historically based is this tendency of influence that you um, outline in the book?
1: Right. So that's the Jacksonian mindset. I guess that's the the fourth frame. I guess I forgot to mention that. So thank you for for bringing that up. The Jacksonian mindset uh, goes back to sort of different ways to to look at U.S. foreign policy, uh, and it is sort of privileges, nationalism, and um, a willingness to use force when threatened. But as you point out the United States under uh, Andrew Jackson did not uh, engage in other wars with major powers. what the United States did do of course was wage war ruthlessly and especially Andrew Jackson against the various Native American tribes in the United States uh, and so I think there again there's this does not betray a, a certainly no pacifistic impulse here or any skepticism about the use of force uh, it's a willingness to use force quite ruthlessly uh, but uh, in, uh, in a certain set of of circumstances to advance a narrow set of interests and I think and again I think that's that's exactly what president trump has has demonstrated a willingness to do for, for example the number of number of uh, casualties um, uh, in the wars the ongoing that the president inherited seven or eight or so it's hard to keep track because uh, of course the the U.S. government isn't very candid about where it's fighting or what it's doing, um, and while U.S. casualties have not uh, increased substantially, uh, casualties of others uh, around the world uh, have risen very dramatically, uh, including in places like Afghanistan and Iraq uh, on his watch. And I think that was that was by design. That was not a that's not an accident. That's 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 a reflects his belief, and I do think this is very Jacksonian. Reflects his belief um, that. Uh, Uh, that the use of force and violence uh, advances um, uh, U.S. national security interests.
0: In the book's analysis uh, or references to the Libyan intervention of 2011-2012, it Mm -hmm. doesn't uh, make uh, the point that the United States was reacting to pressures from its NATO allies, particularly France and the U.K., to intervene militarily. This was not a unilateral intervention Allah what occurred in Iraq in two thousand
1: and three right uh you're right I, I We did not address that in the book although i 've certainly written about that elsewhere as my colleagues both have so so I, I agree with you completely that that was, that is precisely the kind of war. That uh, where uh, U.S. allies sort of uh, encouraged and cajoled the United States to intervene in a conflict that uh, did not uh, address uh, vital U.S. national interests. It did it did uh, uh, concern European national interests, especially in the southern European states like Italy, for example, uh, and France. Uh, and so it's precisely the kind of conflict which I think you would have expected to see European involvement at some level, uh, even if the United States had not been involved but because of nato and because of the pressure that the NATO allies were able to put on the united states it it not only became a uh, u.s didn't merely become involved in that war but in fact was the leading uh, you know the, the leading combatant in the war from the air it was an air war for the most part uh and then providing support to proxies on the ground uh, again much to the to the tr- you know the tragic. Uh, effect uh, for the people of Libya because the civil war in Libya is effectively still ongoing um, and uh, it's very hard to, to point to, uh, uh, to uh, any substantial security gains that the United States derive from uh, that intervention.
0: In your analysis at times of uh, both uh, Russia and China, uh, you appear almost to whitewash both powers from having revisionist territorial ambitions. Why so, since the track record seems fairly clear about both powers?
1: I guess I disagree with you a little bit on uh, both powers. I think in the case of Russia, it's fairly obvious that they have... A great concern that the states bordering uh, Russia, in particular, and some of the former states of the Soviet Union, um, ha- have become or could become um, uh, a base for uh, U.S. and other uh, Western or anti-Russian forces on their soil, and so they've become increasingly uh, v- uh, vocal and and even uh, actively resisting uh, as the NATO, for example, has spread uh, to to the east and onto Russia's border and so uh, I think the, the incursion by the Russians in Georgia in 2008 and the uh, subsequent annexation of Crimea uh, and the incursion of eastern Ukraine in 2014 uh, reflect their uh, their strong desire to not see either of those countries become members of NATO for example or uh, staging ground for US force uh, into Russia. In the case of China uh, I guess I have to disagree with you I- I've seen uh, very little evidence of a uh, territorial revisionist uh, China. Uh, China has waged uh, one uh, active conflict uh, in my lifetime. I'm 52. Uh, That was in Vietnam in 78 and 79. They lost badly. Uh, They have uh, unlike Russia have not attempted uh, to annex Uh, territory or land what you do see because uh, their critical border in that case is along the sea Uh, you see them attempting to use Uh, construction projects and various other uh, land reclamation projects in the South China Sea to build up rocks and shoals into islands and things like that uh, in a way to to sort of affirm their claims to those those territorial waters. Now, again, if if that is equivalent to uh, a Russian uh, military invasion of eastern Ukraine, for example, or annexation of Crimea, I don't don't really see it that way. Um, Perhaps you think that's a distinction without a difference, but I do think it's significant that uh, a country like China, which has a vast uh, military apparatus, uh, has uh, for the most part uh, used that, uh, that force uh, not to take the territory of, of neighboring states.
0: In the book's discussion of the Belt and Road Initiative, the Chinese Belt and Road Initiative, There seems Mm -hmm. to be a little bit of confusion about whether or not uh, it's primarily a political or a commercial enterprise. So uh, on one hand, you make reference to it being primarily commercial. But then on page 118, you state, quote, BRI projects are often initiated and managed according to the political incentives of Chinese communist policy planners rather than purely economic calculations, unquote. So right. which one is it? Is it commercial or is it political?
1: I don't think it needs to be an either or. I think it's both. And I think there's a fair amount of confusion even among Chinese uh, officials and and senior leaders with respect to the Belt and Road. It's entirely possible the Belt and Road emerged uh, sort of as a ex-post hoc uh, um, rationalization for the fact that China had a – uh, massive overcapacity in construction and uh, labor uh, that they that that was reaching the point of diminishing returns inside of china and so they were looking for places where they could uh, invest those resources elsewhere around the world and and thus you have massive infrastructure projects in um, uh you know in central asia and even into sub saharan africa um and then uh, in the case of, uh, you know, how much political influence does the Chinese uh, Communist Party uh, and, the, and the Chinese state believe they will derive from these infrastructure projects and these investment projects is, I think, an open question. Uh, I think it's entirely possible that they will uh, extend, you know, the argument is that they're creating a debt trap for these countries and then that once these countries are in danger of defaulting on these loans, uh, that they will capitulate to China. Chinese political demands and therefore do something the Chinese want them to do that they wouldn't otherwise uh, have done uh, I guess we'll just have to wait and see because I think it's also possible that they have made a number of very bad bets on uh, projects that uh, could not secure private funding or funding that did not was not so rife with corruption that it was just sort of transparently so uh, and they may just be left out holding a lot of bad uh, bad debts and not actually deriving any political benefit from it. Uh, my main concern, and I've seen this in a number of cases here in the United States, is that uh, a, a sense that the United States needs to out-compete with the Chinese by investing in massive infrastructure projects uh, seven or eight thousand miles away from the United States. Uh, I, I certainly hope we don't go down that road. The president, of, the United, the president, of course, as a candidate, talked a lot about uh, you know being the infrastructure president and building. Uh, you know, uh, U.S. Uh, infrastructure, I think many of his supporters would be quite dismayed if, in fact, he became the infrastructure president uh, building projects in places they've never heard of uh, so that we can better compete with the Chinese. But I'll tell you, I, I, I've been very disturbed, frankly, um, by the number of people who, have, who would, under normal circumstances, be quite skeptical of the benefits of foreign aid and be quite skeptical of the leverage that we're supposed to derive from foreign aid, um, but who are suddenly quite Enamored of the notion that we're going to use American taxpayer dollars uh, to fund um, ports and and bridges and roads uh, in in foreign countries uh, to to compete with the Chinese.
0: Fundamentally, why has President Trump had so little impact, from your point of view, on American foreign policy, or I suppose changing it from what it was prior to his um, uh, assumption of the presidency?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I think I think all of us, uh, in the course of writing this book, asked ourselves that question many times. And I, I think, as with a lot of things, there's, there's several different answers. First of all, precisely because the president was so uh, misinformed or poorly informed about the the the, the policy, the, the details of policy, or about how policy is made, uh, he, um, he he didn't have a very a good plan for executing now there were some important exceptions when the president is very determined uh, about something as with the case of changing US immigration law or the enforcement of US immigration law for example he can have a very clear effect but in the case of foreign pol- policy more generally he didn't have a very clear set of guidelines or a very uh, you know a very um, clear sense of where he wanted to go uh, and so he has the, the, the sort of t- traditional inertia that explains how public policy is made has really thwarted him um I also think that uh in the in the case of uh the the foreign policy establishment, the resistance there is is quite determined uh and and so I think there's certainly been instances where uh they have uh actively resisted it's not just a function of him not being very very savvy about how to how to make changes uh i guess the most sort of tragic example in my mind is the the way in which uh the uh, his national security advisors completely uh, rolled him on the decision to expand the war in Afghanistan in the summer of 2017. Uh, Donald Trump campaigned uh, and and even was seen uh, praising uh, Barack Obama, of all things, for wanting to draw down the war in Afghanistan. And yet, President Trump has expanded the war in Afghanistan, both in terms of the number of uh, U.S. troops on the ground and dramatically increased the amount of military operations from the air, uh, in that country. Uh, and we and when people asked him why did he um, uh, you know not follow through on his campaign promise to end the war is because he said, Well all my advisors told me that I I couldn't end the war. Um, uh, The problem is that he chose all of those people. All of those advisors were people that he selected. Uh, And so it's a problem to the extent that it is a problem. It's a problem of his own making. It's a problem because he has populated his own administration with people who are not actually committed to changing policy. uh, And thus we see the kind of inertia uh, that has prevailed for the last three years.
0: Do you adhere to the Trumpian concept of the, quote, deep state, unquote?
1: I think it can be overdone. I think it usually is overdone, but the notion that there are a, a, a a, a bipartisan or nonpartisan uh, cadre of uh, foreign policy professionals who, uh, who, you know, have a particular set of uh, goals in mind an agenda even that's that's hardly controversial um, and uh, I, I think that again it gets it gets overdone however when the president uh, wields it and says that you know the FBI is out to get him and things like that I, I think that's where it sort of crosses the line from uh, there's something to say there's, there's some there's some validity to the argument that there is a nurse or there's a, a set of principles that guide uh, the conduct of foreign policy that's independent uh, of the wishes of the chief executive, uh, but I don't think that that's the, that, that. when uh, intelligence agencies or law enforcement agencies are uh, interpreting the facts, and when those facts uh, defy or, or run counter to what President Trump believes to be true, uh, then I don't think that's a case of a, of a deep, state cons- deep state conspiracy. I think that's evidence of the president not uh, being able to, dis- uh, to differentiate fact from, uh, from fiction.
0: In your chapter dealing with what you refer to as the evolution of American internationalism, you highlight generational changes which you predict will make Americans in the future less likely to support the foreign policy status quo of the past 30 years. Can you expand on that a bit as to um, uh, how you see that evolution occurring?
1: Sure. So I, I actually think we're at a pretty critical juncture, and I think this could go to one of two ways. I, I think there was clear evidence, uh, 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 well before President Trump's emergence, of a rising uh, public discontent with uh, our militarized foreign policy, and most importantly, my and my co-author Trevor Thrall has done a lot of work on this. Most importantly, young Americans, people who came of adulthood uh, since nine eleven. Uh, have uh, a, a deep uh, skepticism of the efficacy of the use of force in a way that that other generations do not. Uh, the evidence suggests that those views will stick with them even as they grow older, uh, and, and we'll have to test that and, and sort of revisit that from time to time. Uh, but if that's true, uh, then we would expect to see far less Uh, U.S. uh, use of force than we have seen over the last 20 or 30 years, uh, as these people uh, actually assume positions in government and run for office and things like that. Uh, That's something that that bears watching. On the other hand, um, uh, the the public, uh, some of those same people, young people tend to be the ones who are least supportive of President Trump in general. Um, And so to the extent that he appears to embrace ideas that are skeptical of military force, uh, it may paradoxically encourage people, those same people to revisit whether or not the use of force may make sense, sort of with the reverse Trump effect or the boomerang effect or things like that. But I don't want to I don't want to dwell too much on that, that because I think the more important point is that, that for the most part, Americans are, are committed to uh, being engaged with the world peacefully uh, through trade and cultural exchange and things like that and that's precisely the kind of foreign policy that we advocate in our book and I think President Trump is not committed to those same principles and so that's why I think that that if we if we come out of this period and we take stock of what we have uh, uh, you know what has occurred during his presidency uh, have we are we safer are we more prosperous are we more respected if that's that's something that could, that matters to him and matters to Americans, or are we, uh, have, have we lost ground internationally under his leadership and what might, uh, what might replace it? That, that's where I think we, should, we want this book to sort of focus on what comes next.
0: In your conclusion, you state that the United States should embrace a foreign policy of restraint grounded on three core principles. What are they exactly?
1: So uh, restraint means uh, a uh, first and foremost uh, a, a, a skepticism or reluctance to use force. Uh, and again, uh, it's important uh, to, for the United States to to put these uh, c- constraints on ourselves because there's no structural constraint. There's no there's no one that's going to be actively preventing us from doing these things. And so it's something it's a choice that we have to take. We have to recognize the the the, the, the shortcomings of the use of force. Uh, uh, I think that's that's a, a first thing. We need to live by the the principles that we espouse, the principles of non-interference and non-aggression that that the liberal order is supposed to be about. Uh, We need to not merely talk about those principles, but we need to model those principles. We need to to demonstrate our commitment to them. That's something that we have not consistently done. Um, And and the third thing is we we need to have much greater confidence uh, and really invest uh, as a country in the notion of diplomacy and peaceful uh, uh, engagement. Uh, that's something that I don't think we've done, and I think it's been most dramatic under the president. Uh, under President Trump and the Trump administration, uh, a real, uh, a real disregard, a real disdain for uh, diplomacy as an instrument of American power. Uh, I think it's still, it is still an important instrument of American power, and I think President Trump um, uh, disagrees with that rather dramatically. And I think many of the people in his administration, uh, at least some of them, uh, do as well.
0: If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be?
1: Uh, Great question. I I think the most important thing and and what really motivated us to write the book in the first place is that um, there is such a there is such a partisan divide in this country. There is such polarization and such sort of hot and cold feelings about President Trump uh that uh there there may be a tendency i fear that uh people will say well if if president trump is reelected then this will affirm uh, that his vision is the correct one, and therefore, uh, that, you know, we'll, we'll proceed along those lines. If he's defeated, uh, then the presumption is, well, uh, this was just sort of a bad nightmare. We're going to go back to the way it was before before President Trump emerged. Uh, and our argument is there, in fact, is a third way, that, that U.S. foreign policy did have serious con- problems with it. Even before President Trump came along, uh, recognizing those shortcomings and, try and, and committing to, to repairing them uh, is really critical. It's not going to be enough uh, if you're a Democrat, if you're if you're sympathetic to the Democratic critique of President Trump. It's not enough to simply go back to. Uh, to what uh, prevailed before him. And if you're a Republican, it's important to sort of uh, scrutinize uh, this idea of turning away from trade and global engagement uh, and whether or not that really is consistent with uh, traditional free market and liberal principles, classical liberal principles. Uh, And I think that that the third way that we propose would embrace um, uh, sort of a, a, we think, a, a, a blend that would appeal to both Republicans and Democrats.
0: With that observation, I would like to thank you very much, Dr. Preble, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Coutillo. thanks for listening to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Dr. Preble.
1: Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure.